We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. Just one more thing. Hey now. Oh boy. Holy mechanical armies. Mom always liked you best. Oh, she did. <laughs> you wanted to be one way. What is the other way? One of these days. Are we having fun yet? It's gonna be legend. Wait for it. Now, you might very well think that, but of course I couldn't possibly comment. Bertie Helens agreed. Oh, come on! Missed it by that much. Good evening. Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sight's TV podcast. This is Kate Kulzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Busy. I have a new job, but I'm also still at the old job, so it's it's getting dicey time-wise. And uh, and hey, if it, listeners will notice this week, you know, we hit the all-important uh, 82 episode landmark, so we thought it would be a good time to switch up the format. Yep, we're, t- we're kind of tinkering with it. You'll see uh, how that co- goes over the course of the episode. Let us know what you're thinking. But uh, but yeah, you know, we want to make sure we don't, we don't get yeah. too set in our ways that we aren't willing to try something new. It's going to be in flux for a while, I think. Yes, and we would very much appreciate uh, your feedback on that. Speaking of feedback, we did get some format feedback from Beth and Keith. Thank you guys very much. Very much appreciate it. Also from Bill. Um, also, I had a lot of fun talking with you guys this week uh, on Twitter. Ken and Rachel talking about the Lusitania and how that applies to Justified. Uh, Virginia, I heard it from you for the first time. I was lovely talking with her about Yoohoo and Yoda, Yoda and YOLO which was fun. Aaron and I talked some Ebert Fest. If you're going to be going to the uh, Roger Ebert's Overlooked Film Festival in Champaign, or, uh, Illinois, I'm going to be there, so let me know, and we can probably hang out. That would be fun. Talked a bunch of Angel with Ken, Shannon, Matt, Beth, Bill, Pat, Zach, and Dave. Um, Shannon and I talked some Supernatural and Meg. Will loves SCTV and quotes it with his sister a lot, so he should probably enjoy our uh, our, our DVD shelf this week. We got the chance to talk with Pat Healy about SCTV. That was that was pretty great. And I, we managed to not geek out over his Angel episode. Yes, you did manage to not say that. And I didn't say that either because I forgot. So <laughs> no, there was, we go. That was fun. Uh, let's see. We, I talked with Zach, Keith, Kyle, and Shane about Game of Thrones Season 3. And then Corey and Kyle with The Good Wife, which we did very much enjoy. It's, there's been a lot to talk about on TV this week. Also over at Sound on Sight, of course, we are the Sound on Sight TV podcast. First of all, we always, we of course, have our Walking Dead podcast that, that we do. It's the two of us as well as Ricky. But that used to be in the Walking Dead podcast feed. They've changed that up now. So now there's a Sound on Site TV feed, which is going to have Walking Dead. And then also right now there's they're doing a Bates Motel podcast. So you guys can check that out if you want more Sound on Site TV talk. But Randy has his best TV pilots article up. Derek has the Doctor Who article. Catherine has the Northern Exposure article. Bill has a Star Trek article. There's so much great uh, original articles going on. I mean, even aside from the reviews. Yes, and I still have, let me check, five days to finish my pop music article. I should really do that. You should really do that. I'm waiting with bated breath. I just keep adding stuff. Like, I, I'm now writing a bit about um, Dominique Nika Nika, which will mean something to you if you watch that show. You'll see. <laughs> Good stuff, but we should uh, we should get into our week in TV here, and we're gonna kick things off a little differently by starting with our week in comedy. Fine, let me see what I have left. A whole bunch of stuff. Long shafted drive gel. 
new nut wrench. Our old nut wrench is bad. Quick hardening cock. We don't want to wait forever for that cock to harden. Lube for drill shaft. And we also can we get a box of gummy sharks? <laughs> This week, between the two of us, we watch New Girl, Mindy Project, Cougar Town, Community, Archer, and Bob's Burgers. So of those, the ones that we're going to have stuff to talk about, Mindy Project, Mindy's Birthday, good, entertaining. Uh, I still really like this show, and I'm glad it's coming back next year. Cougar Town, they got into the faith thing a little bit, which was interesting. I know it was kind of controversial for some people. Community, I'm not sure what they're doing with the Pierce stuff, not... Uh, Knowing that he's going to leave, be leaving the show you know, relatively soon, that seems kind of odd to me. But it was a solid episode, and I laughed. So the, the, but the episodes we actually really want to talk about are New Girl, Quick Hardening Cock, Archer, Ancien, Tangerine, and Bob's Burgers, It's Snakes a Village. So let's, uh, New Girl, start with New Girl. Can, can I just say that because you're not going to hear this because the version you're hearing is edited, but I just heard you say Quick Hardening Cock twice, and it was funny <laughs> both times. So, uh, yeah. Good job on the episode title and and the many dick puns, new girl. But can I just say that, uh, you know, if 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 they wanted to get like avant garde on us and actually give us a new recast Jess or just a different character next week after Jess got hit by a truck, I would be a really happy camper because right now for me everything is working on new girl except for the new girl. And the and the Jess Nick dynamic is just grating on me, and I was really hoping that it wouldn't dive bomb like this. But for me, those scenes are just not working. Well, I I have issues with that dynamic, but I wouldn't say that my issue is is Jess. Unlike everybody else who seems to find they're arguing, making out, or whatever, or, or when they just start bickering and acting like children and escalating with each other, other people seem to find that entertaining or endearing or realistic in some sort of strange way i just find it incredibly obnoxious and uh it, it feels like they go up to 11 with that so quickly and it, that takes me right out of the scene so my problem with that is the approach that they're taking with those two characters but i thought jess was hilarious this week we, if, if jess wasn't on this episode we wouldn't have gotten all of that just that entire hilarious uh sequence at at the uh hardware store yeah i i guess i i it's just I just know that their relationship is going to be such a focus for so long and so and every scene we've gotten with them dealing with it has been heightened and like, you know, this sort of pitched argue like you said, the sort of arguing back and forth, pretending they're not into each other, but actually being into each other and blah, blah. And it's like, oh, OK, I get it. You're trying to do this like madcap, you know, 40s thing and it, you, it's supposed to be cute and endearing. Yeah, but, but I. I love Madcap 40s things. I have an entire chunk of my DVD shelf full of Madcap 40s things. I bought a box set that I think was called Madcap 40s things. I love that. <laughs> I, I, I do not enjoy it here. The end when they break the fish tank and then I was, I was actually very happy that they were just getting, now at least they both know that they both like each other. And they're going to deal with that. But when they break the fish tank and so therefore, which has no fish in it, by the way, so no fish were dying, uh, and, and they're just like, okay, we're just going to storm into our rooms, and then we're going to come out and make out, and then we're going to leave again. That doesn't make any sense. That's just stupid. Yeah, no. And uh, unless we have something else to say, I I'd like to tie this into Archer and some frustration I had with th with this one. Um, the uh, Yeah, I, before we get to that, I just want to say Fish CC was entertaining. I like that they didn't actually pee on his face. And uh, the I'm glad that they're addressing, they're letting Winston have a character. But let's tie it yeah. in to... 
Archer? Yeah, no, no one needs no one needs to see them pull a Zac Efron in the paper boy. As for Archer, I mean, uh, there were some things I liked in this episode. The prospect of, I, I mean, I guess just making everyone a field agent is kind of a cheap way to go. But the idea of Pam field agent is just too awesome to not go with. So it just makes too much sense from everything that yeah. we've seen from her. Yeah, we've just yeah we've seen her kick too much ass, and every, everyone everyone just sort of realizing it's a good idea just makes sense. And I like that we got Lana just being frustrated to the point of quitting, which was great. But unfortunately, uh, she they didn't have her commit to that. And they actually had her being like slightly swoony at the prospect of a wedding ring, which I thought was kind of sucky. See, um, I, I don't know. I was torn about that because I didn't know that she was actually swoony about it so much as holy shit, what is happening right now. Which feels appropriate because we have had that underlying current with her. Now, is was this too much on the nose for you? What... We got with that thread. Are, do you want them to keep, you know, putting it even lower on their priority list, or do you want to see that resolved? I I, I like the stuff with like like you said last week with Lana, you know, sort of silent, like sort of thinking about what she wants to do and sort of going back and forth. But just the way it was treated this week w- with her just sort of like acquiescing to coming back to ISIS apparently at the end was just kind of weak sauce. I thought, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because this was uh, uh, as someone else noted. Uh, only an episode only co-written by Adam Reed, but a, a lot of the humor just felt off. Just so many fart gags, just way too many fart gags per episode. Well, maybe I'm just oh. immature because that got did just make me smile. <laughs> I liked this episode a lot more than everybody else seems to. At least the general f- feedback, both on the you know the reviews that Justin writes of the Thursday comedies, but also just on Twitter and stuff. I I was laughing. I thought it worked and. Yes, maybe the dog was too much of a blatant ocelot stand-in. We've missed Babu this season and his and Archer's reactions to it. He thinks he's people, etc. Did feel yeah. very much in keeping. Um, so maybe some people were frustrated with that in that it just felt like Babu part two and they would rather have Babu. But I still enjoyed it and I liked... I liked watching them in the car and seeing Lana's reactions being the same as Archer's where they get really pissed at the dog and then say, no, I don't mean, of course I don't mean that you're a dog. Um, it, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It worked for me. Yeah. Some of the dog stuff I thought was hilarious. And just in general, whenever they get to have like animal reaction sounds or faces, <laughs> it works better in animated format. It's less hackneyed than when you see like a dog reaction shot on a live action sitcom, which is basically always a sign of inherent lameness. What, I don't you know mean, why uh, it's funny on Archer. In realsies, dogs don't raise an ar- eyebrow at the correct ironic moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, I know it was hit and miss uh, quite literally on Archer. Not as good as the last couple weeks, I didn't think. Well, and speaking of, that'll take us to Bob's Burgers. It's Snakes a Village, which I got to be honest, was a little bit of a disappointment for me. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I, at first, I I, agree, I would agree with you. I feel like the senior home that's secretly a, a, a den of sex mavens. I don't. I should have come up with a different, a better phrase for what I just iniquity. Right? Isn't that a isn't that a thing? Den of iniquity. Uh, yeah, that that's a thing as well. But yeah, sorry, I, I should have had a better thing for that. Well, do you want anyway, to do it again? <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's my earnest apology to everyone, and we must move on. <laughs> but uh, I, no, that's a plot point. I feel like I've seen in about a dozen comedies already so i think when that when it became clear that that's what they were doing i was a little disappointed but i th- i thought there were enough solid laughs along the way uh, especially fr- from the dialogue between the kids i i felt like they almost overdid the songs this week uh th- there there was at least two prominent ones 
and I, I kind of feel like they know people dig them, and so now they're doing them all the time, which can be a, an issue, but... I mean, I like Gene Snake song, so I, I have no complaints. <laughs> My sister is currently uh, out of the country, and so when she gets back, I cannot wait to share, share that snake song with her because she hates snakes. She's a total, complete animal lover. She's married to a veterinary surgeon. She loves animals, but just snakes because they don't have any arms and legs. So that song just snakes. Is, is not cancer. Just not snakes. cancer, just snakes. <laughs> so I actually, because uh, I had that extra personal connection with to that, I, I really did enjoy that song. But no, it's it was a good episode. I mean, Bob's Burgers. I'm at the point where I don't think they know how to make a bad episode, really. But but it, when you compare it to the other episodes we've had more recently, I guess maybe I just enjoyed the episodes that focus on the kids more, whereas this had the parents in the A plot and the kids sort of in, in the B. But so the last four episodes, including this one, have been a Jean episode, a Louise episode, a Tina episode, and then a parents episode, sort of, right? Yeah. And I think all three of the kids episodes are better than this one. Yeah, but I did like the the relative frankness of the, I guess, the sex talk that Bob was having with his father-in-law. Mm-hmm. That's and true. That was that was kind of unusual to see in a in a on a Fox cartoon series. This you know two adults sitting down having a, I guess as serious a sex chat as you can have when one of their when one of their fetishes is to have a woman sit on a balloon until it pops. <laughs> well, and it was it was endearing and really sweet actually, and um, that's the kind of conversations about sex that I think more shows should be having on television if, as opposed to the approach that so many other ones take. I don't need people to be daring. Let's have them just be people. Yeah. This assumes that uh, watching a woman sit on, sitting on a balloon until it pops qualifies as sex, which I'm not <laughs> sure that it does. Uh, we'll have to get some listener feedback on that one. Yeah, I like, though, that they tied in that uh, Linda was like, oh, yeah, that that could be pretty hot. <laughs> like... <laughs> yes. I also, there was just that other line that I, I do want to specifically mention, Tina's, at the end of the episode. There, yeah, lots of lots of angry noises. Yeah, and lots of people having sex. <laughs> Was just yes, <laughs> wonderful and so perfect coming from her. Okay, so of these episodes of the the comedies this week, this week in comedy, which was the winner for you? Uh, I have to go with Bob. Bob's and Archer are really close this week because it was not quite top shelf for either of them. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Benjamin can do no wrong right now for with me. I don't know. <laughs> so, so the the best comedy of the week is H. John Benjamin. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, for me, oh gosh. I think I honestly might have had the most fun while I was watching with Cougar Town because I do really love those characters. So glad that it just got a renewal for, for the next season. But if the one episode that's probably going to be the most memorable for me with a little space, definitely not Bob's because there are so many other episodes that are bigger highlights for me. Um I, um, I tossed toss up between New Girl and Archer. Uh, probably I will remember that hardware sequence in New Girl longer than most of anything else that we saw in comedy this week. So I'll I'll give it to New Girl this week. Fair enough. Whereas I'm still going to remember that I was annoyed with the Jess Nick stuff. <laughs> Let's move on to our next category, which is going to be our week in drama. <laughs> Am I being funny? No, I was just remembering that Eli said the way to battle a lie is to make a bigger lie. You disagree. No. You know the way to battle a lie? No, but I have a feeling you're going to... 
Our next section is prestige drama. So this week, that means Justified Decoy, The Americans Mutually Assured Destruction, The Good Wife, Death of a Client, and of course, Top of the Lake, episode two, and hopefully three for you, three for me. We'll get to that at the end of the segment. First, of course, we are spotlighting Justified Decoy because it was so amazing. So that'll be later in the podcast. But let's start with the, The Americans. What did you think? Uh, it was a sort of, as far as the Americans go, I mean, as far as any other drama goes, this would have been a pretty kick-ass episode. I think for the Americans, it was just serviceable, especially, I thought it ramped up later, but in the early, in the first 15 minutes or so, I really did think there were a few scenes that were way clunkier than usual, especially the conversation uh, between Margot Martindale and, and uh, Carrie Russell in, in the car when she's sort of outlining why she why the marriage shouldn't be taken as real and it, i don't know it, it, there was a little bit too much recapping of previous events and generally the performances didn't seem quite as authentic as generally I, I don't know whether it was a directing or a writing issue but i don't know if fx gave them a note saying by the way you need to tell everyone what happened again uh it doesn't really seem like their style so i don't know there were there were some little things like that okay yeah i kept waiting for philip to tell elizabeth i was ordered to sleep with her because that was sleeping with her was also part of the mission because they wanted to have her as a legitimate rape victim. So there needed to be, you know, something that they could be reported in a hospital, uh, you know, and that's, I don't want to look at me dancing around things. It, she needed to have had sex. Uh, at yes. least that, that's what I read last week. And I don't know, maybe this is supposed to be that he's being, more honest with Elizabeth by not saying that because he had an emotional connection to her as well as just the, you know, the fact that it was part also part of the mission or, but I just wanted him to say something about that. The things got, it got murky and this was one of the things that he had to do for the mission. And so it was complicated. That would have felt more truthful to me. Uh, that wasn't really, that didn't really bother me if, cause I could see being in his position and thinking, okay, I really don't want to get into any of this. Cause if I start talking, I'm going to want, I'm going to want to start talking about my secret kid and stuff. And <laughs> I just want to leave all that over there. So let's just, let's just not do that. Uh, hence the not telling her the truth in the first place. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, we'll see how it, how it falls out. I just, uh, I really did like the notion at the end of the episode though, that we could always get divorced. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, it was, it's great. And then, of course, to immediately follow that up with going up to see the kids. And I, I love that. I love what this show can do based on its premise and uh, also just its execution of they're having the should we get divorced conversation and what how do, how will that affect the kids, but also through a prism of our marriage was never real to begin with and we're spies. I, it's, I, I love this show. Yeah, because like, I'm trying to think, because it made me think of how do you keep up the logistics of like, I don't know. It just it, it really does like you have to you have to really think it through what the ramifications of that are, and it's uh, it's quite something. Also, a guy exploded. That was something. So yeah, there was that. I thought that was actually really <laughs> <laughs> the, the the just the effects of that was very effective. But I also liked the the plan, as it were, for the bad guy that where he you know got the explosive in the phone in the radio. I thought that you know I always like when we see characters have a plan who are supposed to be badasses. And it actually seems like a good plan. It's something we've talked about with the uh, spice rack and with uh, uh, what's the, on girls. Uh, and forbid. And yeah. forbid. And this felt like a legitimate, you know. It felt like a good, if, if you were going to do it, that would be a good way. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, it's also cool when, you know, early 80s spy technology is actually still pretty cool. Yeah. Um, 
but and I also this wouldn't mean much to you, but I really liked the use of the cure song at the end of the episode, which was interesting because some of the most of the most of the music we've heard so far is sort of like you know, you you you, you throw in Fleetwood Mac or you throw in Phil Collins and that stuff that is sort of tied into previous eras kind of just a continuation, but the cure was something totally present to that time like you wouldn't hear anything that sounded like the cure three or four years earlier really especially on the radio so it 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 feels to me like they're they're it feels like a a way to signal that we're entering a new phase yeah see if that's actually true or not and it's nice i mean i i between i i love how i'm the musician but i have no idea when it comes to something i don't know not uh in the classical tradition or out you know not written by an old dead white guy for the most part um, and so it, it actually was, you know, neat for me to hear, especially in the pilots, some songs that I actually did associate with the eighties and the cure is another one where I recognize the song. It did feel very evocative at the time, even given my almost non-existent knowledge. Yeah. Uh, and, and also doesn't cost them as much as Phil Collins, I assume. I, but, I would um, assume. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. People talked about this as sort of like the first, like, dip episode and for that you know if that's a dip on the americans that's not so bad yeah i'll take it next up is the good wife death of a client and uh little john noble made me miss some fringe but of course for me the the takeaway outside of how fabulous alicia looked that was that's a gorgeous dress it looked great last week it still looks great this week but the biggest uh thing that made me really like this episode was the bach bach everywhere i love bach Probably my favorite. If I could only play one composer for the rest of my life, it would be Bach. Well, uh, then good good for you. I mean, there were so many great things in this episode that I didn't even think about that you'd be geeking out over the Bach. <laughs> um, I, I, as, a few, as a little caveat, there were a couple of moments in the last five minutes of this episode that I wasn't crazy about. Um, Alicia confronting her mother by saying, don't, uh, you know, don't put a wedge between my kids with the truth. Which was, you know, it was what she should have said, but I thought it was, it tied in a little bit too neatly with the undercurrent of the episode, which is, you know, the usefulness of lies, the usefulness of the, the utility of truth, et cetera, et cetera. And this is sort of, I feel like it's the Good Wife's Achilles heel, even in their really good episodes. Like, they just can't resist drawing those little parallels a little bit in a little bit too cute a fashion. Um, and I think that afflicts them even when they're really good. And uh, also in that last scene, when you find out what, you know, what the John Noble character was up to really that entire time that he was going to see Alicia. Like, it's a really touching idea, but then, but to have her remember that through the exact recollection of uh, Chris Noth's line about, um, um, about, oh, it couldn't have been that because that doesn't make sense. And then having Noble's character say, say the exact same thing again, like, I, I see what you're doing there, the Kings who wrote this episode, but it's a little bit too cute. Uh, other than that, I thought it was their best episode probably in like months. It was a really, it was a really good one. Well, and it was, it, I like that because we always love the the Good Wife with their with their guest cast, and they do such a great job with really developing the world and building a very complete feeling universe for the show. I think the big thing that they could change that would make me appreciate it even more is if there was any sense that they're really in Chicago, which <laughs> there isn't, at least for me. <laughs> uh, but 
I, I like that we had Matthew Perry on this episode, you had John Noble on this episode, but it didn't feel like a very special episode in the way that some of their more recent episodes have. And some of that's probably just sitting in my brain because of the way that they've been marketing the show recently, really highlighting all those guest stars. But Matthew Perry felt absolutely natural to this to this uh, episode and to what's coming up ahead for the show. And, um, and, and so he really fits in the world of the show, and I'm looking forward to to the confrontations ahead what we get this week should help with that although i don't know how much we're really going to be seeing him on it considering you know go on he has his own show that's true um but i you know that you mentioned that last moment with uh john noble's character it 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 worked for me just because john noble's so damn good um that it still it still worked for me but um no there's a lot to really like about this episode stalker channing's uh relationship with the kids i thought was good uh, alan coming is really good there's there's a lot of interesting things going on yeah I, I think that we've had some issues i think with alan coming just being overused or overused in certain ways but i did love him just absolutely loving uh, everything after the punch and just sort of like not being able to contain his demonic glee <laughs> at what has just occurred uh, and obviously the actual scene of the punch is fantastic uh, with Noth and and Perry at the top of their game, and yeah, I mean, even like the, the the stuff that in retrospect wasn't as interesting still was not uninteresting. Like everything at the police station, everything with Kalinda, sort of figuring out that it wasn't a police corruption issue. Uh, I, I, although, frankly, my favorite use of Kalinda in the episode was when she's at the gay bar and here's that. <laughs> oh, you're a massage therapist. And then she has to leave. Like it was. It was. <laughs> That was some some good use of, of Kalinda right there. Yeah, the the other thing about the episode that I really did enjoy was the use of the flashbacks and and le- the way that they bring up the uh, the Alicia and Will relationship in that way because that makes sense. That would happen when theoretically they they're all that's all set. It's in the past, but when you're working on cases like this, tr- c- cases take years to come to trial, and so it would make sense that even if if that relationship they've tried to move past it and and really be professional and focus on what they need to focus on their that relationship is going to color their work as they continue as much as they might not like it to yeah uh and what i find neat is that they're showing us things that we know happened but we never actually saw happen yeah (laughs) which is that's a neat trick that i haven't seen too many dramas try and pull off certainly network dramas um, so I thought that was nicely done. It was also um, relatively racy for a show of this kind. Yeah. So well played. Yeah, I'm not sure what else there is to it. was just it, it's a difficult episode to try to explain why it was so good if you're not catching the editing, the uh, for the, the, the use of the St. Patrick's Day setting, uh, which was just so great throughout um, and expensive, too, with all the extras. But um, yeah, just uh, the, I, I love that it's a show that can do like a holiday episode themed around a certain day and then use it, but not have the episode be about that. Uh, yeah. Th- this show is just doing so many things better than everyone else. And so I, I it's just, it's too bad. And I'm, I'm sure I've said this a million times. Apologies for the broken record quality. It's just too bad. They can't pull off an episode like this every week. Yeah. But you know what? It's still such a fun show week in and week out, whether or not they bring, they really bring their A game like they did this week. It felt like all the prestige dramas and, and uh, really a lot of the shows we watched this week were really trying to uh, fight it out for the spotlight. For our attention. Yeah. yeah. It's, it was, it's keep it up guys. Cause yeah, yeah that's 
We this, like this it. is actually I would not be surprised if by the end of the year this month or two is going to go down as the best month for drama all year. Yeah, we'll we'll you know Mad Men, Breaking Bad. There's a lot of good Game of Thrones. Can't wait. There's a lot of good stuff coming, but but yeah, even just a single week. If you, like this week's episode of of Justified, which we'll get to, and Spartacus, which we'll get to, and Good Wife, and Top of the Lake, which we'll get to right now, they were all really fighting it out. So yes, un- un- unfortunately, I guess we're gonna do Top of the Lake now. Top of the Lake airs on Mondays, and we record Tuesday morning. And I work Monday night, so it's all it's pretty dicey for me right now with Top of the Lake, which is too bad because it was my damn idea to cover it. <laughs> well, and last week we didn't get a chance to to really dive into the second episode. So what we'll probably end up doing is for for the run of the series is talking about the previous week's episode, and then I'll give a couple non spoiler thoughts about the the one from the night before. So that. This week, that'll be the second episode, and then I'll give a few thoughts on the third. So what did you think about the second episode of Top of the Lake? Well, I think what the second episode really made clear to me is that, yes, it's been divided up into episodes, but to me, Top of the Lake is really just a long film that happens to be somewhat episodic in nature. I mean, lots of movies are episodic, and to me, this feels like an episodic film rather than a TV show. But in but you know I'm I'm okay with that because Jane Campion rules and I I think what really comes out really nicely even more in the second episode than the first is her bizarre and awesome sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think my the the the, the sex scene or uh, or preparation for sex scene in episode two is one of my favorite things all year. Uh, it was just and I think actually it it, it bested any of any of the sex talk in this season of girls actually <laughs> i thought it was just so great and like kind of touching in a strange way but also really really funny and just something only campion would think of uh that if for anyone who, who's listening to this segment and doesn't know what i'm talking about and isn't watching top of the lake for some reason essentially you have this uh this ancillary female character who only has sex for seven minutes at a time with anyone because she doesn't enjoy forming attachments and she keeps a timer by the by the bed and just the, just the shot of the guy looking and and the timer's already up to like two and a half minutes and he's like oh no i've wasted all this time on talking just, uh, fantastic i don't even I, I i've already used up all my time to talk about this episode just for that scene which is fine by me uh hopefully that convinced someone to watch it yeah, it's it really does continue to be a very interesting show. I like in the second episode we get of Elizabeth Moss's character. She does feel far more connected to this this place. I love the dart. That was awesome. <laughs> but yes. uh but yeah, and then in the third episode which you'll get to see uh, I would assume <laughs> sometime in the near future, there is there's just a couple really beautiful sequences and I love the again the use of of place and the the way that Campion and the other directors are able to really capture a, a sense of uh, almost state of mind. And I get that in, in a couple different sequences. There's a memorable one we'll talk about next week in the third episode. Okay. But uh, but yeah, they've, they've really defined these characters. They've really defined this place. And I just really need to watch some more Campion. I need to watch any of her films, clearly. Yeah, I, I, I would recommend starting with Bright Star. Especially for you, okay. But and I don't know how you think I mean that, but you'll see. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and um, the I, I think one of the advantages that Campion has here is that the the landscapes are so beautiful and so uh, and so they just have this remarkable gestural power 
that is just so distinct from most television, which is so dependent on interiors and and sets and studios. And I mean, there's just nothing like where she's shooting. And I mean, even just the fact that one of the main locations is yes, technically, I guess it's a women's shelter, but it's also outside. (laughs) It's which is a difficult thing to explain to someone who's not watching it, but still like just decisions like that, I think just make a huge difference. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's move on to our next category, which will be our week in reality. That was, of course, part of the the coaches singing together on The Voice, which just premiered, had its first episode last night. And uh, it was I always like when they do that. I'm hoping this season that they will actually have a, a group sing like that for each new chunk of the show like they did in the first season the, the most recent season they only sang together once or maybe twice and i think it one of the strengths of of this show is is their casting for their coaches and you really get a sense that these people are knowledgeable and that there's a reason that they that the the contestants should listen to them and having them perform like that is one of the the big ways that they really convey that to the audience uh, our week in reality is is going to be pretty short for the next uh, little while. Now that Top Chef is done, it's just going to be the voice when I manage, manage to catch it Monday night after work, much like you with the uh, top of the lake, and uh, and also the Amazing Race. So for the voice this week, there were some really good singers. There were some not as interesting ones. The my main criticism of this uh, f- first episode is that I really wish they would stop with the sob story for. Every every contestant, they they managed to put together some sob story about being teased for the sixteen year old and how she's you know she's not over yet. she's sixteen of course she's being teased of course she's been teased everybody gets teased when they're a teenager everybody gets you know given a hard time at some point or another that's that's not interesting get to the singing um, as far as the the <laughs> the judges am I not am I too callous there Simon <laughs> no no it's it's good I just it was good phrasing. <laughs> uh, but the uh, the new uh, coaches, I think Shakira. I was actually I, I look forward to watching her. I wasn't sure, you know, they're going they're going from Christina Aguilera as their female coach to Shakira. There's a slight difference in ability there, as far as just vocally, you know, the the voice that they were born with. But she's uh, seems actually rather knowledgeable, and I'm looking forward to 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 getting a better sense of her and her uh, just the, just her word choices and what she's noticing in the singers is. Uh, is more interesting than I might have expected from her beforehand. So I look forward to continue to be surprised by her. Usher, of course, makes so much sense as a, as a coach. He's been producing artists such as Justin Bieber, who he discovered for quite a while now. And so he's clearly very knowledgeable in this. And I think they make a lot of sense and it's good to switch up the dynamic to a certain extent. It was getting, it was getting old in the last season. So they, the, the biggest thing that they managed to do on this show that they have not been successful on and, and some of these other reality singing competitions is to keep it really fun. And that the way they do that is with the dynamic of, of their coaches and that with that trans with that switch, it might have been iffy, but they seem to have done a good job with that. So I'm looking forward to watching some more, uh, some more of the voice, but let's talk about the amazing race. They started this episode with a, uh, with a, with an apology. That's, that's new for them. Apologies in general aren't that common. I don't think it's only on television <laughs> that apologies aren't common. How often in your life have you earnestly had to apologize to someone? Um. Well, does family count? Yeah, everyone counts. Everyone was, counts. <laughs> everyone counts. But you know, how many times have you sat down and apologized to someone and actually meant it? Um, 
I don't. I'm not sure. I. I. The, the difficulty is I'm behind on the Amazing Race, even though I am in the pool, even though I'm doing not very well at the moment. Although I will eventually win. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm. I'm not sure. I fully understand the the controversy at hand, uh, but the notion that they had the contestants sit, sit around watching a pro communist anthem be performed on American television is inherently hilarious to me. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was interesting because I was watching the beginning of this episode, and I was like, "Wait, what controversy? What? I watched I watched last week's episode. Where's the controversy?" And so I googled it and real, you know, saw what the issue was. But um, I, I believe that's the first. What I think is most interesting about this is the way that it ties into into the the creation of of each season when they're trying to structure what the challenges are going to be and what parts of the, of the, these various cultures they want to try to highlight when you're in your 22nd season you kind of started to run out of the 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 ones that come first to mind right so i i'm actually curious if it might be good for them to take a season off or a half you know they do two a year so take a cycle off and give their create, you know, their producers some some time off to kind of get refreshed creatively. I feel like the challenges haven't been as interesting for the past couple seasons, and even the the places that they've gone, they haven't been as difficult. And I don't know if they just need some new some new people, some new you know creative energy in the, the I guess the producers' room. I don't know what the right term would be. Oh, I think that qualifies as a writer's room. Yeah, but I, I don't know. Have you have you been disappointed in in the challenges over the past couple seasons? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, I'm not a long-term viewer of The Amazing Race, but I do think I think they've had just as much trouble with contestant selection mm-hmm. as challenge selection. Uh, and and again, maybe that's a function of of editing and having and just too quick of a turnover rate because they do two seasons a year, which is slightly insane uh, when you really start to think about it. Well, and they have so much footage to draw from. It's yeah. I, I can't even imagine trying to decide how you're going to craft a story for each of these different kind of teams with that much footage. Yeah, it has to. I mean, whenever I start to think about the production aspects of The Amazing Race, I start to get a headache, to be honest, because <laughs> it just seems really, really complicated. Yeah, or maybe even just having like two sets of teams so for the for the different, you know, the, the two seasons so that they have more time. I don't know. I don't know what they could really do for that, but... I definitely think that there's there's been an issue. I would agree with the casting as well. Um, we're both in last place in the in the pool. Neither one of us got any points this week. Uh, Mario's still no, in first place. No, I got some place. bonus points. You got, got some, bonus? some bonus points. Okay, I got I got zero points this week. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we'll see. I'm I'm throwing all my my chips in. Not all my chips, but I'm throwing a lot of my chips in with uh, with Chuck and Winona getting eliminated. I think next, just because. I get really tired of, of contestants who feel the need to talk about how uh, how weak they are all the time, and that seems to be Winona's thing for right now. But um, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens moving forward. And Pam and Winnie, I, I was so happy with, when they were like, no, we're not trying to make fire. Making fire is really hard because I was like screaming that at my television. <laughs> my brothers <laughs> all did Boy Scouts, and my dad and my mom were both scout masters at various times. And so I know <laughs> that making fire is really hard, and I was really glad to see at least one team acknowledge that. <laughs> But that uh, I think that's probably enough Amazing Race talk for now. Let's go on to our next category, which will be our week in genre TV. (sighs) 
Our final category are the genre shows this week. So that for me is going to mean Supernatural. And then for both of us, Vampire Diaries and Spartacus. Uh, of course, we also have the Walking Dead podcast, which should already be out on the Sound on Sight feed. Um, that's talking about This Sorrowful Life. And we were happy to have Dan Heaton from Sound on Sight join us for that. But but for Supernatural, I'll dive in there. I just wanted to mention in Goodbye Stranger, it appears that they have killed Meg. Um, I don't, you never know on this show. And that's why I feel comfortable saying that because it doesn't feel like a big spoiler because people come back from the dead a lot on the show, um, at least comparatively to other shows. Uh, so I don't know if she's actually going to be coming back or not, but I wanted to mention Supernatural at all, really, because I'm curious, I want to throw it out there. I can't forgive Meg for killing Ellen and Joe and feeding, basically feeding them to hellhounds. So I... When, though Rachel Miner does a really good job in this episode of making Meg likable and the dialogue for her is great. Her rapport with Misha Collins is fantastic. All of her scenes, I really liked her, like the performance and the character. But I kept waiting for either Sam or Dean when Meg is saying, how come when you guys never looked for me after I helped you avert the most recent, you know, big bad? Nobody says, well, I don't know. How about you killed Joe and Ellen? How about how about you 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 know slaughtered our friends? That's a good reason. I and I was frustrated that nobody brought it up. It felt like the show is trying to kind of they have a problem on Supernatural where they have very few, if any, recurring female characters, and so I understand them trying to build up the few that they have, but I don't think they should sacrifice the character histories that they've established in order to do that. So I, I have a little bone to pick with Supernatural in a, otherwise a very entertaining episode. Uh, but let's move on to the Vampire Diaries because the night, of course, my Vampire Diaries review is up at Sound on Sight. Um, and I don't think we either have, I don't think either of us have very much to say. Um, the thing that was interesting to me about this episode is that the characterization of Bonnie and Caroline uh, was, and even the Lexi and, and, um, and Damon and their scenes was was off and was not consistent with what we've seen in the previous episodes, especially the most recent episodes in which we've seen them, Bonnie and Stand By Me, at the end of the episode is in a completely different place than she is here. And I don't know whose fault that is. I'm curious what you think. Is that the fault of the writers of this episode for not being consistent to the last time we saw the characters? Or should the writers of the previous episode, because they talk about in the writer room, writer's room what the overall arc is, should the writers of the previous episodes not have taken them quite as far? Or is that the, the showrunner's fault for not crafting the arc better? Or is that the actor's fault for not selling it? I wouldn't blame the actors. Mm -hmm. I don't see how that's possible to blame the actors unless they're all secretly Timothy Oliphants and calling the shots left and right. Um, I think you have to blame the showrunner. Because it's not up to the writers of the individual episodes to make those calls, the important calls, mm -hmm. about which about each character's arc. I think you have to blame the people, the story editors and the showrunners in that in that instance. Yeah, I, I, I can see that, definitely. It's, it's tricky, because without being in, you know, pretty much, I get the sense that a lot of writers' rooms kind of each run a little differently, and it's... You know, it's hard to know just how much, how specific the arcs are laid out from episode to episode. And then with, depending on the way that the, the, the turnaround is, theoretically, the, the writers of this episode may not have uh, known precisely exactly how things were left off in the previous episodes. So, so they're kind, they might be just going on the overall 
idea of where these characters are supposed to be, but it, it is a tricky situation. And that's one of those things with, with television where it is such a collaborative medium and something isn't working. Usually it's not down to just one person, uh, though, you know, with more autistic shows, you could maybe get into that discussion. It tends to be just lack of communication or, or friction behind the scenes, or even just a lot, you know, split focus maybe, or, or, you know, differing priorities from, from the people in charge. Or it could be not adjusting well to production choices made above everyone's head. Mm -hmm. For instance, like the, you know, the walking dead shift to a 16 episode seasons, which I think we can both agree has been a huge problem for that show. Yeah. Or even just, the fact that they're going to have they're trying to do a originals spinoff and i think that has very much affected this half of the season right yes exactly that's another decision that 90 percent of the writers and and staff have nothing to do with but they still have to adjust as best they can yeah uh as far as the episode the specifics of the episode itself i'm just gonna skip over it read my review at sound on site if you if you're if you want my fuller thoughts um Parts of it worked for me. I like the flashbacks. I love the Lexi's seventies hair. Actually, that was pretty cool. Um, I think I think you you would find the the punk scene rather laughable, as uh, what I've been told. That is not what uh, punk mosh pits are like at all. But um, I I still think that the period stuff was fun, even if I don't necessarily by the way that they're kind of retconning the Lexi and, and Damon dynamic. But um, let, let's move on, though, because uh, on the list of, of genre shows we have to talk about, there's a big one we have to get to, and that's Spartacus for the Damned. And holy crap, they are building to their finale. It's it's final days. We only have two episodes left. And um, this was a big one. Yeah, yeah. No more Crixus. Crixus be dead. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler. Alert. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Uh, come on. Spoiler for history. Spoiler alert for history. Yeah. Like, come on, really? Um, but yeah, this was uh, thoroughly awesome. The only reason it, I mean, honestly, the only reason this isn't in the spotlight is I think because Justify gave us our best episode of anything so far this year. Yeah. Uh, is, is that, is that controversial to say? I don't think so. On a regular week, this would have been in the spotlight. Yeah. But this was thoroughly awesome and definitely has me looking forward to the finale. Just the, there was I, I need to start getting out a pen and paper when I watch Spartacus so I can write down all the awesome lines, even though the line delivery is half of it. But especially Crassus has a line about hounding someone uh, into in, into death in darkness. And it was just so good. Um, yeah, so many like I have to say that the rape scene, which uh, my none of us expect. Obviously, they can't kill Caesar, but apparently none of us consider the other stuff. Things. Woo. Yeah. I, okay, first of all, like, my jaw was open so long that I thought maybe I was going to get locked jaw huh. at just how messed up that was. But also, like, now that you phrase it that way, I kind of imagine that it, that the idea came up in the writer's room fairly quickly. It's like, okay, we can't kill Caesar. What can we do? Rape him. Yeah. Well, like, that's just how I, how I imagine it happened. The setup of the scene, it looked like they were holding down his hands and they were, he was going to, like, cut off fingers or something. But this is a soldier. You can't do that to your most badass soldier it doesn't make sense and then all, of course it's also not historically accurate so th yeah i would not be surprised if that's how that came up in the writer's room i thought as as difficult as it was to watch and i, I do think we yeah I, we give credit to spartacus frequently for this but i want to mention it again their depictions of of same-sex relationships 
on this show are fantastic. We get, we, I'm so glad that uh, Agron got over his jealousy issues before leaving. And that, that relationship between those two has been so beautiful and wonderful that it was in a terrible way, kind of nice to see the, the abusive flip of that. We've seen women get assaulted on this show a lot. And so it was nice to have some equality in that. <laughs> As, am I a terrible person now? <laughs> You're a little bit terrible. But then again, it's happening to Caesar, so I don't really feel so bad. Well, and um, it, it was also very interesting to see, because we thought we knew what was, at least I thought I knew. I, did you think you knew what was going to happen with the Kore, what happened to Kore coming out? It seemed like, you know, they, they were leading up for, to, for it to be a reveal, and then Crassus takes out Tiberius or something like that happens. But instead, no, left turn, it's leading to this. And this is why they had Tiberius rape Kore, so that this would happen. Yeah, because apparently he's just a raping machine. Well, he's um, a piece of shit. Yeah, I can't remember the last time I saw a character on TV who was an equal opportunity rapist, so that, that's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, even Joffrey doesn't do that, to my knowledge. <laughs> well, there's still time. He's <laughs> young. But yeah, the other thing that I, I feel the need to highlight is, I, admittedly, with some players, I, I gather it took a while, but I'm really impressed at how they've managed to assemble a cast of, like, tremendously fit and or incredibly pretty people who are totally willing to drop trow at, at the drop of a hat or more mm-hmm. and can act yeah it blows my mind manny bennett is fantastic in this episode and i remember watching the first season of this going oh god i and i because i hadn't you know re-looked into spartacus so i didn't realize how central a figure Crixus was in that first season but it, it very much felt like oh that's the guy that they found who's in really good shape who's willing to to drop trow and that's why they cast him and i'm i was wrong he's really good he's fantastic in this episode he's really grown as an actor over the course of the series and they let him go out in well we'll talk about that last shot but just this final episode was just like it was bromance everywhere and it was such wonderful material for Crixus. yeah uh, there was bromance and romance. There was all the romances, yeah. um, <laughs> all, all the romances of the rainbow. But uh, yeah, he's he's gotten to be really good. Um, and yeah, but I mean, the whole cast, like, it's amazing how attached you grow to all of them, even though like when you first start watching the show, you just think, oh, it's just like a whole it's just beefcake stacked on beefcake. Yeah. Anybody who thinks this show is in some way comparable to, I don't know, 300, you're wrong. Yeah, no, and, like, I, I don't know, this just, like, this this show, like, I, I keep going back to this to this notion, this, like, if you were to watch, if, if you were to not be a, a seasoned viewer of Spartacus and just watch any five minutes, you'd just be like, oh, this is garbage. But I, I guess it, it takes a certain kind of viewer to accept just how awesome it is, but I, I think that if more people had given it a chance, like, everyone should be talking about the end of Spartacus. Yeah. Everyone. It's it should be the most epic thing ever. I should be able to walk down the street and pay 11 bucks every Friday to sit down with an audience and watch the new episode of Spartacus. Oh, my and God. Totally. Cheer and cry and yeah. And drink some, I don't know, whatever. The mead. Roman ale. Yes. Drink some mead. Yes. Drink some, <laughs> some, some, uh, some it, like it would be wine. Proof ale. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Depends on if you're with the Gauls or the Celts or, uh, or who, but yeah, I, absolutely. It, I get frustrated, uh, watching Spartacus in that I have nobody to talk to in real life walking around. Cause of course you're up in Canada and I'm in, around in the Chicagoland area and nobody I know is either watches it or is up to date. My brother who I, 
after this last episode, I texted him. I was like, oh, of course. He would He would love this show. I got to see if he's watching it, but he's not up to date, so I can't talk to him about it. More people need to be watching Spartacus. But, of course, that's the trouble. It's really not a show for everyone. It's not a show for everyone, and you can't just jump in either, especially because we're so close to the end. So it's not like we can say, tune in this Friday. You'll love it. <laughs> totally. I really think this is going to be one that 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 grows on 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 DVD where its its re- reputation just continues to improve and improve as uh as more people discover it on DVD and um yeah it took me a while to to start watching it and I'm so glad that I caught up last year I'm so glad we're talking about it week to week uh thank you yes. for poking me about that but... Yes I was about to say I totally take credit for this but um <laughs> we had to talk about that last shot though Oh, the last shot. Yeah, that was, I mean, it's it's so hard to tell with Spartacus how much of what you're seeing is computer generated mm-hmm. and how much is, is practical, like actually on that set. But I, I'm assuming that a good deal of that last shot with Grixis's beheading reflected in Nevia's eye before it closes, uh, which just an amazing visual and uh, and so perfectly appropriate for every one of those characters. Um you know, I, I have to assume that's mostly sort of an illustration, but still, it was pretty poetic and amazing. It was it's, That's wonderful writing from whoever came up, whoever's idea that was. That might have been one of the showrunners that might have been the writer of the episode. Whoever came up with that, genius. It was the perfect way to shoot that. And it's what exactly what you said. And it's what the, one of the great strengths of Spartacus is. All of these decisions are based on character. So having Navia's eye closed and then she forces herself to open it to see Crixus get killed and to give him that honor of I'm going to watch. And then as soon as she can, she closes it back up again. It's it's poetic. It's beautiful. And it's it's also a very convenient way around beheading your main character, one of your main characters on television on a show where beheadings at this point have gotten kind of passe. Yeah, and uh, in fact, I would say the staging of the sequence is almost on par with that scene in the first season of Game of Thrones, because I'm sure someone has made that comparison already. Mm-hmm. But uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is I know that some pe- I was reading um, some comments from people who actually do watch it, and I know that a lot of people were really upset that we basically just saw a, a bunch... We saw, we saw at least one character, if not two. I'm, I'm not really clear on the fate of Agron yet. Oh, he's um, dead. Are we sure about that? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> anyway, we saw we saw a couple of characters get basically punked by Tiberius by like you know mm-hmm. like cheap shots in the back, which a lot of people were really upset about. But that's the only uh, way a character like this is going to go down. If you don't stab him in the back, they're just going to kill you. Exactly, and it's not as though like which one of the Roman characters would be good enough to kill these to kill the gladiators? None of them. So it's like what this is just how it goes, people. Yeah, well, and they've done a, such a wonderful job, and air quotes wonderful, of building up Tiberius as someone you hate, truly hate, like Joffrey levels of hate for that character. And uh, I look for, this is the one of the things that I, I tweeted out uh, after watching this episode, I look forward to the way that I've decided how I want them to kill him. And I want <laughs> Caesar to stand by and feed him to Navia and Navia can be a stand-in for us for Corey because Navia has been 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 wronged in the same way as Corey and I just I look forward to that happening. 
listeners, don't mess with Kate. She has elaborate revenge <laughs> fantasies you know nothing about. Apparently, apparently. The last thing I want to mention is the scoring in that last in those last moments with Crixus. It was beautiful scoring. I loved the use of the solo string, but that's that's a cho- orchestration choice that's been made in moments like this many times before, and the composer managed to keep it simple and yet interesting and and uh and and to, to really sell that moment without it feeling cliche without it's like oh now let's raise the string level or the solo lone instrument which is about to get cut short you know he he really did a great job with that moment and and making it feel unique and we don't hear solo instruments uh instrumentals in this show very frequently normally they go big and to go small but in this particular way was incredibly effective for me yeah yeah there was everything about that sequence was was pitch perfect and it has me already dreading slash wonderfully anticipating similar sequences we're going to get in these last two episodes with you know all the other characters who need to die everyone else yeah i know uh i have an idea of what's going to happen next because you know in the next episode as opposed to the finale because history and it's gonna be awesome so I'm yep. looking forward to it. Uh, any final thoughts on Spartacus or shall we go to our spotlight? Uh, no, I just, I want to yell quotes that have swears in them. And Me I don't, too. We don't, need the, <laughs> we don't need the explicit tag and I have neighbors, so. <laughs> but no, but trust me, the, the week that we do our our, our series, uh, our, our DVD shelf on it, there, we're, there's going to be no holds barred. No, definitely not. I'm going to have to do my homework and find my decide on my favorite quotes because damn. I've been working on my horse voice. (laughs) Well, now we're going to take a break, listen to some music, and come back with our our spotlight on Justified Decoy. That was Love Train, featured oh so prominently in this week's episode of Justified Decoy. This episode, I've I've watched it a couple times since it aired. I will I will just be astonished if this is not in my top ten of the entire year. This this ruled. Oh my god, I am so geeked out right now. Uh, <laughs> this it's oh God. It was so good. I don't think, um, as much as I love the finale of last season, I'm not sure there was an, an episode last season that was this. Um, this is going to sound like not a sufficient word, uh, but it, it was so efficient. Every single microsecond of that episode, every line of dialogue, every performance beat, every direction choice, uh, every just e- e- every microsecond of the episode is just so perfectly pitched to to just be like, you know, the episode can't be more than 42 minutes long. And it's just like a a perfect, you know, mini action movie, Western 42 minutes with no bullshit on any end of it. It's just, it's, 
it's an, it's just a machine. Like the it's it's I'm I'm in awe of this episode. Yeah, the thing with this episode is that there are better episodes for character in Justified. There are better episodes of Justified, probably. But this has to be the most purely entertaining and enjoyable 42 minutes that this show has ever done. Every single character that we are interested in gets something either awesome <laughs> or 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 heroic or interesting to do. We find they the pieces that we have been waiting to come together in a couple different situations do. We get to I mean Everybody gets to be a badass, and that's everybody on both sides of this equation. Yeah. Everybody involved, the writers, the directors, the editors, the actors, the producers, everybody's at 11 in terms of just doing their job really damn well. And when you when you watch serialized television, and this is something we talk about on the Walking Dead podcast sometimes, Every now and again, you're going to have episodes where you move the pieces around, where you set things up. And that's why we didn't spotlight uh, Justified last week, even though we really loved that episode. Because we could tell from the way that that previous episode was structured that this episode was going to be the payoff. And holy crap, what a payoff. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to explain if if you haven't actually watched the episode just how awesome it was. But one thing that's really interesting is if you actually break it down minute by minute into dialogue versus action... It's not that different from your average episode of Justified. It just so happens that because of the conflicts that are set up and because of the character dynamics that they've spent time, you know, seeding, it's just the perfect moment to to look at these characters. I mean, I mean, Colt and Tim are, are a great example. Like, not that much actually. Ha- I mean, a car blows up. You know, that's about it. That's all the action that really happens with Colt and Tim. But the, di- the but the dialogue between them is so good. So perfectly acted, so brilliantly written, uh, and and I love the the tinges of self awareness too, like um, like Ron Elbert, a young Gerard uh, Depardieu, uh, uh, oh, Gerard Depardieu, yes, fantastic, that would be great casting for Colt. <laughs> that is the casting for Colt. Yeah, he needs the, to do the, a movie with Gerard Depardieu where he plays his son. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> um, and everything from that to the Lieutenant Dan bit to just ah uh, so. I'm almost speechless is how is how good this was. I'm just like, why didn't you watch this if you didn't? Well, and I've heard complaints that it's not very realistic in that none of those mob guys would in any way try to, to harm any of uh, the marshals because the penalties are so severe. I believe it's something like 10 years for verbally assaulting a federal officer. 20 right. you know like it's like 30 at least if you shoot them it's like they're they're, they're really stiff penalties such that that's why federal marshal, marshals so very rarely get killed in the line of duty or get get you know injured like that um and yet i upon second watch i i think that they take that into account that didn't bother me because you see them very specific they're not that scene with tim and colt is a perfect example they he has no interest in actually killing them, he just wants them stuck there so they can't help. They're they're hoping that Drew Thompson will be there and they can kill Drew Thompson with a sniper rifle, but they have no. He has no interest in killing anybody else in that van. Yeah, he's very specific about that. And even when they're dealing with, uh, with the marshals and they think Drew Thompson in the school, it's all about negotiations. Like, okay, like if we have to, we're gonna come in shooting, but they really, really, really don't want to. 
Yeah, and that's what makes this episode so so much fun because it's unjustified is very rarely about the action. Yes, when they do it, it works well and it's effective and it's exhilarating, but it's all about the dialogue. And I love that we have that the self awareness in that as well with Michael Malley's character. Yeah, and man, he uh, we're we're gonna get to the obvious MVP of the episode later, but Michael Malley is tremendous in this as well. And his scene with Joel Carter late in the episode is just dynamite. And I, I also love the the capper to that scene. Something about because Johnny finally confesses his love, and it's just such a non-event, which I loved. Mm-hmm. And um, and then she's just thinking, "Oh, I can see why you like her." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, fantastic! It's a wonderful tag because you you think you're going to end on, "Oh, that's sweet," because that would be a wonderful. That would be a like a perfect closing line, except that then they can they manage to top it. Yes, exactly. They found something even better. And that's, man, the the right. I, I would love to be a fly on the wall on one day of the Justified Writers Room, just throwing pitches at each other because they're just on fire right now. But man, Patton Oswalt yep. as Constable Bob. That I mean, I knew because have you seen Young Adult by any chance? I have not. I, I, I've i been wanting to see both a big fan and Young Adult for a while just for him. Look. The, the guy's got got dramatic chops that not a lot of people know about, and he was he's great in both those movies, and he's predictably great here. What I didn't necessarily see coming though is that I've seen him be a, be a, a wonderful dramatic actor, but I haven't seen him do like really strongly physical work before. And that is such a physical performance with the wheezing and the crawling, and just the sheer difficulty of doing anything after Yolo has beaten you half to death. Yeah. Um, which also that guy did a fantastic job. Yeah. Uh, as well. Um, which is just as important. But yeah, everything about that sequence is. To, and, and also, uh, I gather you probably haven't seen True Romance, but I once, have uh, seen True Romance. Oh, you actually. have seen True Romance. Oh, there you go. Well, there you, <laughs> I, I'm actually not a huge fan of True Romance, but uh, I, I I didn't even think about the connection between uh, Patricia Arquette's beating in that film and Patton Oswalt's beating here that uh, Yost drew in his uh, weekly postmortem, but it kind of makes sense. And it's an interesting uh, parallel, but yeah, that's give it up for this guy in this episode. Holy crap. Well, and I love that the last time we saw Constable Bob, right? He was overreacting to a situation uh, to the, the, the taunting of Sam Anderson uh, and, and the other, I'm sorry, I can't remember the actor's name or the character's name for either of them, actually, the, the two rich guys and pulling out his go bag and just not in control of himself, not, you know, it, he, he gives the one piece of information Raylan needs to be able to, to figure out who Drew Thompson is, but it's right after he's proven himself in that moment to be utterly incapable of uh, making the correct choice or, or handling a difficult situation. And so to contrast that here, I think there is really, obviously on a show like this, you kind of expect that the underdog hero character is going to turn out to be a badass hero and prove himself. With Constable Bob, I was kind of just expecting Raylan to run in and save him or for him to die. I like that they didn't give it that, that this was a callback to the first time we saw him with the stabbing, but also that it was up in the air for a little bit. Yeah. And reading, reading about that, reading, uh, you know, reading about what Yost had to say about that. First of all, that, that, that the whole beating idea was Timothy Oliphant's idea was so credit to him. Tip of the hat. Tip, tip of the hat. Yes. To Timothy Oliphant for that. And also that he was insistent that 
he like because I, I guess at some point they had Raylan coming in and saving him at the last minute, but he was like, nope, this is Bob's job, <laughs> and that it's it's you know it doesn't it doesn't necessarily boost our lead character's badass quotient, but it helps the show and it makes the ensemble more interesting, and it's it's tough to make calls like that. Well, and it lets that last moment work where it's just Raylan and Bob, and that Raylan feels confident to to be in that situation with him because Bob's proved himself and he's shown himself to be valuable. And I also love that they give the idea, the solution. Again, such it reminded me very much of the ice pick killer from last year. Such an elegant solution. And they set it up earlier in the episode, but you don't think about it again until the just the, the wonderful reveal at the end. Yeah, that was that was so great. I mean it would have been nice to have a better sense of uh of where the trains were running exactly in comparison to the school. But that's just a very tiny nitpick. Uh, I don't expect this level of, of obvious awesomeness from the last two episodes, but they do tend to end seasons really strongly. So, yeah, I'm, I'm expecting more goodness, just not more over-the-top zombie uh, <laughs> amazingness. But, yeah, this has been a killer season. It really, it's been very entertaining. I still don't know as much as I loved this episode. I don't know if I would rank the season as a whole higher than season three and season two. But it's so, it's been so, just like, again, like this episode, it's just pure entertainment value. Circling the wagons. It's just this episode is full of moments that are just awesome. <laughs> I just, I, when when Colt said they're circling the wagons, I pictured you sitting there just like freaking out. Going, yes, I love this show. <laughs> I love it when it's, I love Westerns. I love the show when it is a Western. And to just, the, the and it's not even just the line. It's the the delivery from Ron Ron Eldor, just just like the holy shit, they circled the wagons. Yeah, because the the, the show has a great sense of when it knows it's being awesome, like mm-hmm. when like uh, or or characters noting when something is awesome, like last season with Raylan and the and next bullets coming faster, or this season with um with them recapping the tale of Drew Thompson. It's like when Eldar delivers that line, he does it, and Yost writes it knowing that them pointing out circle the wagons is awesome. And you should be annoyed by that because it's so it's, it's like cocky even, but it's just like, what are you, what are you going to do? It's, it's almost like the show is throwing its arms up at you and saying, what are you going to do bitches? And there's <laughs> nothing you can do. Well, and again, it's that you, you think the problem that, that Colt in Colt feels so confident is, is what he set up there. And he knows Tim well enough to know that Tim's going to figure it out and then they're going to stop there and he's going to be able to get a shot. The reason that it works and the reason that it's so entertaining this whole episode is because each move from both sides is incredibly smart, is a good idea. And they and the writers and they don't give you a way out that most viewers, I would assume, think of. I didn't think of circling the wagons. <laughs> Certainly yeah. not. And so I love when they make the characters smarter than me. Yeah, and uh, and I've also really liked. I, I was so glad that Colt's arc this season hasn't just turned out to be uh, Vet gets back on drugs and just kind of fails at life because that's not an interesting way for that character to go. So for him to sort of, to some degree, get his act together and at least be competent at doing things uh, is fantastic. Well, and it restores our faith in Boyd of why Boyd wanted him there in the first place. Why Boyd was you know interested in bringing him on his crew. Uh, the last thing I want to mention, because we can't go on forever, unfortunately, we're already going long. Is there's some really great humor 
in this episode. There's a lot of really great character beats that we haven't even mentioned. We find out a lot about Raylan in this episode, um, sort of in between the dialogue even. But there, I wanted to mention, there's some really great humor. It's not a fantasy. These thrown off lines that yeah, yeah. <laughs> just make the whole thing that extra bit of fun. Yeah, and, uh, and Drew's tales uh, out of school about Arlo which were mm-hmm. fantastic and anything to sort of deepen that character after his departure, I think is, is great. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Everything, everything about this was awesome. I don't have it at the first time I watched it. I had kind of a problem with, uh, with Pat Oswalt getting up from that beating. The second time I watched it, I didn't have that problem. Although frankly, I could have gone with at least one shot of Timothy Oliphant carrying Pat Oswalt around. <laughs> I see. The thing is the episode didn't have the space for it. What are you going to cut so that you can put that shot in? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Plus, honestly, I'm not sure. They, maybe they tried it and Oliphant just wasn't physically capable. Well, I mean, I, I, it doesn't really matter to me because I can fill in the gaps of, you know, how long it took them to get back. I don't need them to, to show that to me. And um, I don't Shall we end with uh, our favorite Drew? Which which was your favorite Drew? Oh, it's got to be. <laughs> uh, it's a really too close race between Nancy Drew and Drew Baca. Really? I, I was all about the Drusitania. I didn't even connect that, that at first until somebody tweeted, holy crap, old school naval reference. And, I mean, I, I just, that tells you so much about um, about Constable Bob, too. You know, like what, because yeah. you know that he's like, got to think of something else, got to keep it going. If only to shore up his own confidence and ability to hold out. No, I just, oh man, this is such a, such a great episode. Yeah, we're, we're exhausting ourselves just trying to explain to you how good it was. That's how good it was i actually thought of the last thing because we haven't done it yet justified justified yeah yeah can't can't leave a justified off hopefully hopefully the last two episodes will inspire a similar similar take absolutely we'll we'll uh, see what happens next week if it's right back in the spotlight again or if we give it a week off while we wait uh, for the finale but uh our our few show notes before we go to our dvd shelf with pad healy talking about sctv of course our intro and outro music is sweet petite by the bicycles you can always email us the televerse at gmail.com and of course you're both on twitter i'm at the televerse you are at sucker howl we have an MP3 and an M4A feed up in iTunes, which the M4A feed has chapters. The MP3 feed does not. We would love it if we could get some new iTunes ratings or reviews. Uh, that really does help other people find the show or, you know, retweet us out on, on Twitter, like uh, share on, on Facebook, any of that. Of course, speaking of Facebook, we have a Facebook group, The Televerse, where you can get information, you know, get updates about the, the podcast, but also we, I also post the uh, the various reviews that are going on at Sound.site TV there. So if you want to follow what's going on with the, all the different shows we cover at Sound.site TV, and God, it's a lot at this point. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> then you should like us on Facebook. What should our question be? We are started, sort of starting to t- tinker with the format, so maybe just let us know uh, what you think of that, if you even noticed, if you care, uh, and if you or if you think we're doing something horribly wrong, which we probably are. Honestly, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're going to take a little break, listen to some music, and come back with our DVD shelf, Talking SCTV with Pat Healy. Oh, good day. Good day. Good day. Good day. How's it going? I'm Bob McKenzie. It's my brother, Doug. How's it going? Hey, we today. got two topics today, back bacon and long underwear. Like, they're different topics, right? Okay, first topic. Well, I don't know which one should be first. Which one should uh, go long underwear and then food as a reward. Okay, long underwear is our topic today. 
and my guest is my brother. <laughs> How's it going, Just eh? like on real shows. Yeah. My guest today is my brother, Doug McKenzie. And, How are you? Uh, he's, Good day. He's like an expert, right, on long underwear. That's right. Because he, like, dirties them <laughs> so much. <laughs> okay, no, seriously, though. Uh, long underwear, right? I don't. How do you know when to use it? I don't. Well, what? I don't dirty them, me. No, I was just kidding. How do you know when to use it? Well, simple, when it's cold out, right? Okay, the other topic. Wait, I thought I was the expert. There were six people who loved to watch television, but they didn't like what they saw. So they decided to do something about it. With determination and a strong will to change the course of television, they wrote their own shows, classy shows. But they knew that wasn't enough. They had to sell them. Letting nothing stand in their way, they went straight to the networks. But the networks just weren't ready for them. Not NBC. Not CBS. Not even ABC. But did that stop them? No. They built their own network, SCTV. And they liked what they saw. But they weren't the only people watching. Yes, SCTV was on the air. This is SCTV Channel 109 in Mellonville Cable 6. We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week at the DVD shelf, we are thrilled to welcome actor Pat Healy. You guys will know him from, of course, most recently Compliance and The Innkeepers, as well as many, many other things. But uh, Pat, welcome to the DVD shelf and the Televerse. And you're here to talk about SCTV. What made you want to talk about the show? Thanks for having me. Uh... SCTV is really important in my, uh, you know, formative life uh, 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 as an actor and a performer and just uh, uh, as a fan of comedy in general. It came on about a year after Saturday Night Live did. I was really young at the time. And um, I remember the first Saturday Night Live I saw was Fran Tarkenton the, from the from the Minnesota Vikings was the host. So it's like probably like 1976, which is around the same time that SDTV came on. And even though it was not and isn't now and never was nearly as popular, it was uh, more popular in my house to my parents and my brothers and I, and uh, if not just as much and, and much more uh, influential, I I guess I would say, um, and, and, and remains so to this day. Yeah, it's one of those shows that I until you picked SCTV, I had seen very little of it. There are actually a few sketches and characters that I was surprised to recognize from other things. It's just I had never made the time to sit down and watch it. Of course, it was before my time. Right. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, it was, you know, many several seasons of half hour shows and then. It became a 90-minute show uh, in 1980 or 1981, I think. So it's a lot of stuff, but you do see characters that showed up later on Saturday Night Live, like uh, Ed Grimley uh, that Martin Short did, and, uh, of course, Baba Doug McKenzie, who had uh, Strange Brew, the movie, and um, many characters like that, and, and also just sort of the character types that people like, John Candy and Rick Moranis and Martin Short and, and um, you know, Dave Thomas, Catherine O'Hara, Andrea Martin, Eugene Levy, all these sort of uh, prototypes of these 
characters they would play. They would play celebrities and mock celebrities, but they would they'd have these essential characters that have you know remained uh, staples to to the work they do today. Um, with the with the with the sad unfortunate um, exception of John Candy, of course, but. Um, they all sort of develop these identities as very young people on the show that 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 have remained parts part of their uh, who they are as performers in movies or television, whatever. Absolutely, Simon. What was your experience with SCTV? I until uh, I think like you, Kate. Until we arranged the shelf, I had actually watched very little of it. I had. I mean, I'm I live in Toronto. I'm from wow. Canada. Uh, so I mean, I've only lived in Toronto for eight months, but I'm I'm. <laughs> from the country that Toronto is in. Uh, and um, so obviously I had some peripheral knowledge of obviously, especially like Bob and Doug McKenzie and sort of iconic figures like that. I'm not really a sketch comedy person. Uh, I even when like, for instance, when I hear that there's an amazing episode of Saturday night live, I'll seek it out and I'll watch it and I'll chuckle sometimes, but usually I, I find myself regretting the experience. <laughs> um, you know, if, if only because it, it, yeah, I, I know, I know it, even even it it seems like even when it's good, what people mean is it's only half good. But uh, regardless, that's a separate issue. I I, I guess for for me the chief interest, uh, in uh, let me start that over. Uh, the main reason SCTV is interesting is because it's it's bizarre to think of a time when a Toronto comedy troupe was so was so well-known and so influential throughout all of North America and where they could make Canada, especially like to, to make Canadian jokes and gags, you know, on NBC for for 90 minutes at a time, um, you, know, in, you know, at least interspersed. And I guess I, I, I feel it makes me feel a bit sad because, you know, this is a bit of a tangent, but Toronto just overtook Chicago for population. I don't know if you guys, mm -hmm. if you guys both knew that. And, and yet, like, as in terms of our actual, you know, what we produce as a culture, there's very little of note that people would know anything about. You know, we, you know, there are some actors that come from Toronto and things are shot here, but there's nothing set in Toronto or, you know, that feel nothing that feels identifiably Torontonian that has any dispute anywhere. The actors either come here to become famous or it's used as a, uh, you know, as New York or Chicago or whatever in, in, in an American film. Exactly. And it, SCTV re retains its Canadian-ness. I mean, even in the intro for the NBC version, they make a big deal out of the point that they're going to New York to to, to make a show. Like, they're, the otherness is always there. And that's more so than the show itself. I think that's what I find fascinating. And it was, you know, I mean, more than a decade later that, anything would come close with with kids in the hall which you know a lot of the same people behind the scenes and directors and writers and things were a part of and interestingly enough you know their their chief rival lauren michaels was behind um and and i feel like that show um you know sort of has has retained a kind of um you know credibility today with young people uh, that sctv just doesn't have i i think Maybe because it's on more, but I think it's more, more in our recent history and more hip. But even people of my, you know, generation, a little bit older, are uh, you know not as hip to SCTV. Where I could, you know, really quote so many of these things that are a part of uh, 
have been a part of my life, you know, with my brothers, we're, we're constantly, you know, using it as a reference point of things uh, all the time. And, you know, it's, it, I looking back on it, it's that it had all the great sketch qualities of the stuff like SNL had. And, but it also really had these really bizarre long tangents, tangents, it's surreal. I think they had, you know, they were because they were in Canada, they had sort of more license. They were sort of left alone a little more to just sort of do weird things. And they were a, a strange combination of people who Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis had really strange, high concept ideas. And, uh, you know, and some people were straight up clowns like John Candy and Andrea Martin. And, um, and they were great at impersonations and, they were great with all of the prosthetic makeup and stuff, which didn't even become a part of Saturday Night Live until the mid '80s, when when Martin Short from SCTV joined the cast. You know, usually on Saturday Night Live, you know, the president Jimmy Carter, you know, John Dan Aykroyd played him with a mustache, or Chevy Chase played Gerald Ford, uh, just looking like Chevy Chase. But you know, on on SCTV, they really like went for it and tried to make them look like the people and all that stuff. And it was very elaborate on what I'm sure was a, a shoestring budget. So those kinds of things really uh, stuck with me. Well, what I found particularly interesting when I was approaching this, uh, the first way that I started, you know, trying to watch catch up with SCTV was uh, while I was waiting to get the DVDs in, was to to go just go on YouTube and you know I had thrown out to Twitter what are the sketches I should make sure that I see, and so I just you know started watching a bunch of Bob and Doug McKenzie and some of these other sketches, and it wasn't working for me. And right. I was worried I, I was going to lose any possible comedy cred I might have with the internet, uh, and and uh, I was just I was nervous about it. But then once I got the DVDs in and was able to watch full episodes, I liked it a lot more. And I thought that right. was really interesting. The the long longer form structure, especially with the ninety minute shows, I think really works and and makes the sketches that I had watched out of context of the rest of the episode work in a way that they, they didn't when they were just by themselves. And I also think, at least for me, I mean, I grew up watching a lot of old school SNL and uh, Kids in the Hall, too. When we got cable, it was right when Comedy Central started showing Kids in the Hall like, every other day for a like, right. marathon style. So I was very familiar with that kind of humor. But when I was watching the sketches that felt more like SNL sketches on SCTV, it wasn't working for me as much, perhaps just because I'm used to some of the comedy that, that was sort of inspired by, by SCTV. So their game show sketch with the Alex Trebek character didn't, doesn't, didn't work for me because I probably, because I was comparing it to Will Ferrell right. and Celebrity Jeopardy. Which in a way is, is kind of a, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it were inspired by the, because the Eugene Levy, Alex Trebell, who is the Alex Trebek character, is is constantly getting flustered in a way that Alex Trebek never did. But you know that that was a quality that Will Ferrell had on uh, when he did his Celebrity Jeopardy on Saturday Night Live. I mean, it's it's an interesting show as like an exercise in both sketch and sort of meta, which is like the show started off as a parody of a SCTV, a television network, so they'd have sketches of shows or movies of the week or commercial parodies. And then as the show expanded to uh, the 90 minute show, we also got into the back, um, the, the, the back office soap opera of the people 
and the personalities who worked on the network and the stories behind the sketches and things like that that really got into these really funny, uh, you know, meta ideas about what goes on in show business and Hollywood and and uh, television networks and the celebrity clashes and all that stuff. And um, that was something that was really new to me. I didn't really know a lot about as a kid. And it was kind of like a an introduction to, uh, you know, what what's, how sort of show business sees itself, whether it's like these self-congratulatory talk shows like the Sammy Maudlin show, which is basically a parody of the Tonight Show or the Rat Pack, you know, type things where these guys are constantly laughing at each other's jokes and slapping each other's legs and all that stuff and the self-congratulatory nature of that to, um, you know, people wanting more money or uh, this character that John Candy played, uh, Johnny LaRue, obsessed with, uh, you know, equipment. He's a, a running thing where he's obsessed with having this Nike Chapman crane, which is really expensive and, he wants this really long shot, uh, like at the end of Chinatown for his kind of Chinatown parody that he does. And uh, to sort of read the backstage stories about John Candy really wanting that crane and and really really costing way too much money and then being really upset with him using that. And then them making like five more episodes about the network being upset with him, uh, you know, wanting that crane to the point where they do this sketch where he's. He's in the snow on Christmas Eve and Santa delivers the, the crane to him, all this stuff. Um, I just, I, I, I've always loved meta comedy, you know, like whether it starts with like Blazing Saddles or the movie becomes about itself or the, the, the Zucker Abrams Zucker movies, you know, where they, they, they start to comment on themselves. And SCTV to me was sort of, uh, at least on television, the, the pinnacle of that. Well, and one of the other big things that it did that was that separates it out from some of these other sketch shows is that it really, as you were saying, Pat, it really builds a world. And and so, again, as I was watching the, some of these sketches out of context, I was never laughing at, at Caballero. Uh, but but then within the context, context of the show, over over time, you, you come back to these characters. And yes, of course, on SNL, they, there's a tendency to find a skit that works and then run it into the ground by constantly coming back to it. But SCTV avoids that in that while m many of the characters recur over the entire run of the series, it feels more like it's a continuing narrative yes. than, than that it's a separate recurring sketch. And I would, I would, I would add to that that uh, you're not wrong in that there are many episodes that I could watch that, that they really aren't funny but they're really interesting. I mean, it's like it, th th there's there's a like really long conceptual things that Dave Thomas did, like uh, this thing, Shake, The Adventures <laughs> of Shake and Bake, which was William Shakespeare and, and Francis Bacon. It's not that <laughs> funny, but it's like you're like, wow, they just did a whole half hour of of this and they really went for it. They're really committed to it, you know, then there yeah. are that are really funny, like a this. I remember the first episode that was an entire i believe it was their first episode that was in, devoted to one thing was a, a a parody of the show fantasy island where um you know it was not only a really funny parody of that show with uh, i don't even people know that show anymore with ricardo montalban and and uh little uh hervey village but uh they did this parody of it which then one of the fantasies was these two rock stars wanted to be comedians like cheech and chong but they end up turning them into 
um, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby instead. And so it becomes this parody of a Bob Hope, Bing Crosby road movie, which then they all end up in Casablanca because in Rick's place in Casablanca. So it's this Casablanca parody and it's all these things wrapped up together. And at the end, it becomes a, a, a Wizard of Oz parody because the, one of the characters wakes up and it's a dream and it's the Wizard of Oz. It's it's really like interesting sort of stream of consciousness, humor and connections of different things. Um, another example of that was the um, Close Encounters was re-released in 1980 as the special edition where they added these scenes and they added um, the Richard Driver's character going into the spaceship at the end. And at the time they did this thing called Merv, the special edition, which was, Again, something probably a lot of young people don't know, the Merv Griffin show, this popular talk show. And it's Merv Griffin basically in the Close Encounters role, but he has Hal 9000 on the spaceship and Hal and Orson Welles is there, I guess, because of War of the Worlds. And Hal is jealous because Kubrick didn't put him in Barry Lyndon and he's mad and <laughs> he lost him out of the space and it becomes this weird 2001 parody. And, and it's just like... You just kind of like, even if you're not really laughing, you're kind of marveling at the, the genius of them rolling all these things into, you know, each other. Um, that that I, even as a kid, I don't know if I found it funny or even got all the references, but I always loved it. Yeah, and I, I have to wonder, watching things like that I personally thought was hilarious, like even though I, I wasn't around for any of it, I've always found uh, Richard Harris's music career hilarious yeah. and awesome. Uh, so anytime they bring him, like the whole MacArthur Park sequence to me is just is just personal catnip. Uh, but I have to wonder how someone who doesn't know maybe even who he is uh, would would find that. Uh, similarly, my, my favorite movie parody moment, and I, I do like the parodies a lot, is easily the Igmar Bergman parody. Uh, oh, the, which, uh, see, which see is just... Marriage or is it... Uh, oh, the uh, third, the um, the wolves, the hour of the wolf, or whatever they're calling it. Oh my God, that is amazing. Well, they did another one. A lot of people don't know that, and this is actually um, timely in keeping with some of these shows that get canceled by networks and get picked up elsewhere. This is the first show that I remember doing that was that they got picked up by Cinemax for one season after they got canceled by NBC. And they did another Bergman parody with Martin Short as Jerry Lewis in Scenes from an Idiot's Marriage, <laughs> uh, which is hilarious. Unfortunately, those the Cinemax shows are not to be found anywhere. They're not on DVD. They're not available. I suppose maybe you might find some bootlegs on eBay or something, but I've never been able to find them. And um, occasionally a sketch or two shows up on, on YouTube, but they were really um, – they had lost a lot of the cast, you know, John Candy and um, Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis were gone. But uh, that was really like Martin Short's, you know, pre-Saturday Night Live, his kind of like golden hour. He did these just amazing uh, things, you know, which, you know, he still does today. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, God, there's so much to talk about. I mean, the, 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 the personalities on the network that, uh, you know, the, the news anchors, um, Earl Camembert, uh, Eugene Levy, and Floyd Robertson was the, Joe Flaherty, which is just like an idiot. And then Joe Flaherty was the sort of foil, was just tired of the idiot. But can, uh, can I just mention, like, I don't feel like Americans get the Floyd Robertson thing exactly because, I mean, 
he's I mean in in a different way I suppose but they may not understand that Lloyd Robertson was a was a real Canadian newsman and sort of like our like the like, I guess the most prominent Canadian newsman for like for a couple of decades. Right. So it, it's just I just find it funny like again that they that they got away with all these arcane Canadian gags that they kind of turned into something else. And we kind of relate to that. I mean, we do have, you know, local news anchors here that are that always kind of seem half in the bag, like half drunk and kind of grumpy, you know. So we we get that archetype. I mean, you probably get it more because it's based on a specific person. I think it's really interesting that I don't know if it's ever directly referred to, but Floyd Robertson, the news anchor, is also Count Floyd, the the horror <laughs> show uh, host who uh, dresses, you know, like Dracula and does this accent and, you know, the movie that he's going to show almost always never arrives and he has to uh, vamp and, and, and make up some silly things like he, he talks about a movie. Uh, Joe Flaherty, who was from Pittsburgh, um, is plays the character, and he he starts to go into this rant about this movie, the blood sucking monkeys from West Midland, Pennsylvania, and it's clearly <laughs> improvised, and uh, it's just they would it would it seemed to me like they would then sometimes he would improvise something, and they would film the sketch or the movie that was going to be shown based on his improvisation i i should note that i i always i i always felt and still feel that joe flaherty was the most um underutilized and most least recognized after the show he really is a fantastic um performer and he was uh you know the teacher of of not only many of those people because he's older uh but but many of the big stars of the early saturday night live Aykroyd and belushi and all those guys um he really is like brilliant as Guy Caballero, as 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 Count Floyd, as uh, you know, they had this uh, singing group, Five Neat Guys, which is like this folk group, which yeah, it's hilarious. I love that one. <laughs> he's great because they're all singing, and usually, if you just watch him, he's drunk and he's like usually just leaning on the shoulder of one of the other ones and like badly lip syncing to the music while the rest of them, you know, kind of sing along. They had a like an Oscar Awards parody one where they come out and do the kind of Billy Crystal thing where they sing the parody of the uh, of the um, the nominated movies. Uh, I remember Ra- Raiders of the Lost Ark, and in the ending, the Nazis face melted. <laughs> Stuff like that. That just is so funny as a kid, and then just. Who knows if I had not seen it as a kid, I don't know if I would still find it funny today, but I, I do, you know, of course, Joe Flaherty was so great in that first and oh, so short lived uh, season of freaks and geeks as the dad. That's what yes. I knew him from. But, uh, but it was really great to really discover him in this and just to see him have a little bit more fun. You, Count Floyd, I think is actually one of my favorites recurring gags. I got to say, but if, if there's one person I, that was very much a discovery for me in this I mean, of course, all almost all everybody who was on the show is somebody that I really recognize from from you know all of their work that they've done since. But the one who was the biggest surprise for me was actually Rick Moranis because I yeah. know his film work, but he's so good in this and did he's it really. Brilliant. And he didn't come from SCTV. He's the only one who wasn't you know in that original troupe, but he's so good. Right. He was never a sketch performer. He never performed with Second City, and he. Um... He's a master mimic, and his characters that he created were 
uh, incredible, you know, uh, including um, Jerry Todd, who was this VJ, which was before MTV. He was a guy who played videos. So even in that, it was kind of like a groundbreaking ideas that he had, uh, something like that. Uh, or he would do like, um, I guess they, um, it was before the, the producer Joel Silver in Hollywood became famous, but he they, they had had a meeting with him and, and he did this character called Larry Siegel that's based on Joel Silver, who's this screaming uh, movie producer. <laughs> and it's just, it's incredible to this day. It's just constantly like we quote it, you know, and, and um he, uh, yeah, he really, he really is amazing. And it's, it's, um, it's sad to not see him as, as much anymore. Uh, you know, there's been some tragedy in his life that's prevented his career from going further, but, um, he was just brilliant. I remember a, uh, like I, we talked about the, the Merv, the special edition, which was him. And they also did the Merv Griffith show, which was Merv Griffin in the Andy Griffith show with him as Andy Griffith. <laughs> And uh, uh, Eugene Levy as Floyd the Barber was kind of just pervy, like, you know, outlandishly pervy in the way that Floyd the Barber always kind of seemed pervy. But he did a really great Dick Cavett, Rick Moranis. And Dick Cavett was known for really just sort of, you know, being a great interviewer, but sort of being as interested in himself as he was in his guests. And he has actually a very high concept sketch where Dick Cavett's guest is himself. So he just interviews himself and talks about how wonderful, you know, they each talk about how wonderful the things that each other said. But and the the thing that I like about uh, that sketch is if, if I'm not mistaken, he's talking about hanging out at a party with himself, but the, the story in the story, they're hanging out with Woody Allen, who he also plays on the show. So it's like a triple gag. Exactly. And, and Groucho, I'm sure always gets name dropped too. Uh, is Woody Allen, by the way, is spotless. Dance. Amazing. Yeah. I, I love that whole, it's, it's, I, it, again, it's, I think it's an almost episode length thing in that, in that, uh, in the 30 minute format where it's, uh, Woody Allen trying to persuade Bob Hope to do a movie. Right. It's up. That's uh, pretty great again, as well. Play it again, Sam, but it's played again, Bob. So it's Bob Hope as as the the Humphrey Bogart uh, character. They did that as well with Dave Thomas as Bob Hope, which is is one of the great impersonations of all time. I guess Bob Hope uh, loved that as well. Um, my favorite Rick Moranis thing starts with the Jerry Todd show, which is a, it's a Jerry Todd show that's a, that's all centered around. It's an episode that's somehow all centered around. Michael McDonald era Doobie Brothers. I don't know if you watched this one. And they, the first thing they have is a, a carpet commercial with Michael McDonald singing, Shag, yeah, shag carpet, shag and rust, you can even insist, and all this stuff. <laughs> then they have a, a video of Rick Moranis playing some kind of loungy singer singing Downtown, the Petula Clark song, but with, with Michael McDonald on the back. Uh, and then there is a um, a famous song that Christopher Cross sang called uh, uh, Ride Like the Wind that Michael McDonald did the backup on. So he just, you only hear him like occasionally. And it's, it's Michael McDonald in a car riding, he's racing his car down the freeway to get to the studio and he gets into the studio just in time to get his headphones on and sing his backup part, which is like such a long way to go. And then he'll stop and like have a conversation with someone and then, uh, be quickly reminded he has to do it again and, 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 and run in there and do it. So it was this whole sort of 
episode that was, you know, just sort of making fun of Michael McDonald and how kind of funny he sounded, which is something that people kind of really only catching up on now. But they were nominated for or they won an Emmy one year. I think it was 1982. And at the Emmy show, they ran into both um, Michael McDonald and George Carlin, who Rick Moranis did an amazing uh, uh, is the only person I know that's ever done a George Carlin impersonation. Um, and, and, and they were both upset with the, the portrayals of them <laughs> have much sense of humor about them. But Rick Moranis did this George Carlin that where he just made up fake George Carlin jokes that are like, um, why is an escalator only go up or down? Why are there no sideways escalators? Weird. And it was like, it was so George Carlin that sometimes I'll think of those jokes and I don't remember if they were George Carlin jokes or if they were the Rick Moranis and George Carlin jokes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he was, he was, uh, you know, he's fantastic. Simon, what uh, were the actors or sketches that most stood out to you? Well, I, I have, I have fond thoughts of, uh, well, again, taking it back to the to it to the show's Toronto ness, I can't not give it up for uh, Catherine O'Hara, um, who, along with her sister Mary Margaret O'Hara, are kind of like the kind of like the angels of Toronto. Um, but you know, in terms of the uh, the sort of inside the, the the sort of meta aspect of the show, I think my favorite thing about it that we haven't discussed is I love all the interstitial stuff with the promos. And uh, for for the for the fake movies and things like that, and the which would always say like not coming on Thursday or not in its regular time slot or if we can afford it or whatever. Um, and and as as someone who who follows the TV industry, I, I I couldn't help but but take that as catnip. Yeah, those are brilliant. And and to bring back, you mentioned Richard Harris before. Dave Thomas is Richard Harris. They have that's kind of a parody of all these Lion in Winter, Man Who Would Be King, and all this stuff. And it's a uh... The man who would be king of popes. Yes, I love that. <laughs> oh well, Pete, uh, Richard Richard Harris wants to be king. Peter O'Toole wants to be pope, and uh, Richard Burton wants to be the king of popes. And they're sort of all competing with each other. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is um, for me, but the the PBS parodies I think were the things that that worked. Uh, like of of the various parodies and things, those are the ones that really <laughs> spoke to me. Maybe I spent too many hours as a kid watching Masterpiece Theater, but uh... no, that was um. I mean, I think Dave Thomas was responsible for a lot of that stuff, which is like um, all things great and small as uh, mm -hmm. all the long leggedy beasties. <laughs> uh, they have um, uh, yeah, several of those. They're 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 really funny, and their running soap opera is really funny too. Uh, Days of the week. Uh, which they did more on Cinemax, but uh, which sort of like Days of Our Lives or whatever, and features a lot of them in a really great way. But yeah, the, yeah, all the BBC things. Um, there's one really long one called Vikings and Beekeepers, which is it's like a whole episode one, which is just this like it's not funny, but it's just so weird that they did it. And I guess it's kind of notorious for being. I guess Dave Thomas called it Dave Thomas's Waterworld with Vikings and Beekeepers, which is this long thing that's about Viking. It's like a Viking epic, but with there's beekeepers on the boat and it, it's just just plain weird, you know, but, uh, you know, nobody else would, would kind of try those sorts of things. Um, there's um, there's a parody of Ben-Hur that's like an episode long that is uh, where Ben-Hur is played by John Candy, but as as Curly from the Three Stooges. 
And when he, you know, falls down, instead of Jesus feeding him water, it's it's the Johnny Walker uh, guy with the golf pants who pours him some some bourbon and leans down and get him. It, it's it's like really long and funny and and specific to these, you know, different kinds of uh, movie tropes and character tropes and and uh, you know showbiz show busy things that uh, that you just kind of don't see anywhere else and. You know, like I said, people probably won't get. I mean, I just I had a thought as we were doing this that maybe people will be um, interested in, you know, watching it now, you know, and maybe feeling the same way you did, like they don't get it, but like they want to and delve into it deeper because I don't know how much of a big personality, for example, David Steinberg, who is a you know pretty prominent Canadian personality, but not as famous anymore here. But Martin Short does an impersonation of him. Uh, and most notably in this production of uh, Peter Pan starring John Candy as Divine, the transvestite as Peter Pan and, and uh, David Steinberg as Captain Hook. It's just, it's so funny that you'd think it was funny. Like my niece, who's like four years old, thinks it's really funny, but she doesn't have any idea who those people are, or who they're supposed to be. You know, someday she's probably going to look it up and find it even funnier. Well, if if your four year old niece doesn't know who Divine is, that's a sign of good parenting. <laughs> I'm sure you know. Knowing my brother, though, and it's probably not long. Yeah, there were definitely sketches for me where I was watching it, going, "I'm sure this is a reference to something that I'm not getting." Yeah, uh, it, it's or one of those you know moments where you're like, "Okay, this is really funny, but I can't quite figure out." why and maybe it's because i'm half remembering a reference but i was actually surprised by how how much of the uh humor even when i knew that there was something big i was missing to kind of piece it all together it's it still worked and um i don't know for me there's a sense that uh sctv is uh, depending maybe i'm just listening to certain bigger comedy snobs but if you say that you like snl or classic snl that's one thing but if you're a real comedy fan You'll like SCTV, um, and so it was. It was really, you know, I was really pleasantly surprised that once I started like watching entire episodes and really getting into the show, that it did live up to the expectation for me, and and I did really enjoy it. Well, I'm really happy to hear that because, like, I I just don't know. You know, I feel like it's one of those things that it's really funny because my father will always talk about your show of shows in the same way, and 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 I'll watch it and I'll get it, but it's from the '50s, and I don't. I don't find it funny. You know, I understand. I understand completely why it was funny at the time. I mean, I kind of get Ernie Kovacs on a conceptual level that I find really interesting. But I think that like for many people, you know, SCTV is like your show of shows is for me where it's just like the references aren't as accessible. And also it was these kinds of things that were being done for the first time that were kind of, that are kind of really commonplace now, these types of parodies and commonplace and yet also, you know, kind of just gone completely from the landscape. But um, it's, uh, you have to sort of be willing to go with, you know, finding things. Sometimes Albert Brooks movies are, not funny, but great movies because they're just, sometimes they're just sad or just interesting, you know. And and um, sometimes comedy needs to be that and is that. And I I, I really love that about it. And I, I I didn't know probably half the references when I was a kid watching them, but it would cause me to seek out things that, like I felt that I was missing or or and and that probably gave me 
a greater understanding of, of, you know, not just comedy in the show, but things in the world, because I didn't know who, you know, Lola Heatherton was supposed to be. And she's, you know, based on this singer, Joey Heatherton, who was, you know, vaguely popular, popular, I guess, in the late sixties, early seventies. But once you kind of like get into that, it's just like, you, you know, specifically what they're what they're pinpointing and and um it's really 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 um i guess specific you know to um to show business and it's like one of the great show business uh, parodies still well we are unfortunately uh out of time do we have any final thoughts about sctv uh simon i feel like uh the last thing i need to mention in terms of influence is i actually thought of in terms of some of the sort of really surreal and clearly very deliberately low rent segments. And in terms of the public access uh, influence, I actually, it, it made me think that, that guys like, uh, like Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim probably watched a bunch of SCTV as, a, as kids and then decided to take those aspects to their logical extremes. Uh, so I, I think if you're interested in, in, in comedy history, you've probably already watched SCTV, but if you haven't, then this is your homework. Definitely. Pat? Yeah, I think you're I think you're probably right. I hadn't thought about that and I should probably ask one of them the next time I see them uh if that's true. I I was I was thinking also of Mr. Show in the way that Mr. Show is very much the uh, Monty Python um but but there's also a parody of media and and showbiz in a way that's that's really high concept and strange and out there. Um and didn't reach as quite as large an audience and that, that maybe more people are familiar with to me, Mr. Show is, is the only show that I would put on the shelf with, you know, certain Saturday night live eras I would, but Mr. Show and, and SCTV to me are, are, are the best sketch shows because they are um, creating art, you know, um, by doing things that are sometimes, you know, risky concepts. If, uh, at, at the possible, you know, uh, sake of, of getting laughs. And I just find that because they're plenty funny. So they can, they can, you know, take their time with, you know, being conceptual. And, and, um, I really love that about comedy when comedy can be that, and you know, Tim and Eric, as you mentioned, are, are a really good example of that. Cause sometimes that's not just horrifying and not funny at all, but I love it. Well, uh, thank you, Pat, so much for coming on the show. Thank you for picking SCTV so I could finally check it off my list of I need to check it out. Um, where can our listeners find you online? Oh, I'm, uh, I have a Tumblr, uh, um, the, the Pat Healy at Tumblr. Or, or it's, well, it's the Pat Healy at Tumblr.com or just look me up on Tumblr. I'm also on Twitter, Pat underscore Healy, H-E-A-L-Y. Um, Thank you, guys. I, I Not only thank you for having me, but thank you for letting me talk about the show because it's I love it so much. And, and uh, I want more people to, to, to discover it or rediscover it. Well, hopefully people will listen and check out the show if they haven't. And let us know what you think. Um, if, if, you're, if you love SCTV or if you're new to it and checking it out for the first time, we'd love to hear from you, everybody. So once again, thank you, Pat, so much for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. <laughs>